0: Today on Public Research with Daniel Schwartz, episode 13, MSNBC columnist and Substack essayist, Elad Naharai on October 7th, the transformation of Twitter, and how Elon Musk became the most dangerous anti-Semite in the world.
1: For this episode, I had the honor and privilege to talk to Elad Naharai, who I really think is Maybe the best writer on anti-Semitism in America today, I also need to give some important context. The first half of this episode is an interview that we had scheduled a few days after October 7th, but we had planned on discussing Elad's work regarding Twitter. Because of the recent attacks, we ended up focusing on them and the American reactions to them. The second half of the episode we did focus on Alad's work regarding Twitter and Elon Musk and the roots of extremism, so I just wanted to give that context. Thank you for listening, and now enjoy the wise words of Alad Naharai. So this is a dark and historic uh, week in Jewish history, the history of Israel world history and i'm really honored to be able to talk to one of the wisest writers in my opinion elad naharai during these tragic days uh we had a horrific massacre by hamas uh, in southern israel many old people and children were killed many abducted the reaction to it was alarming to many of us, and I really I wanted to know what people like Al thought, people like Ben Lorber, Joel Swanson on Twitter. I, I sort of consider you guys my three. I think you guys are sort of the triumphant. I, there's other great people. Don't get me wrong, but you guys really get it. I think. Well. Thank you so much.
2: Yeah, I mean, I uh, I feel honored to be in that
1: group, but. Uh, What I like about you is there's a wisdom and there's a kindness and a humanity that I see in your the way you approach politics and um, connecting different communities. So it's such an honor to be able to talk to you at such a dark time. First question is, how are you doing just on a emotional level right now. Um yeah, I
2: mean, I uh, you know, as as I've been saying to everyone, it's just, you know, I'm doing as well as one can in this moment. You know, I think uh we're all suffering, we're all having a lot of, you know, pain and difficulty right now. Um, but I also feel in a sense, um, you know, I feel very lucky that I'm, you know, I feel that unfortunately there's so many people that I know that are going through so much worse. Um, And also, I feel very lucky to be in a Jewish community where I feel held up and and supported. Um, So I think, you know, in this context, I feel like I'm doing as well as one can.
1: For me personally, uh, it's been sort of a whirlwind and things come every day, different fears, different events. Do you have any thoughts on uh, what these days have been like for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's tough because, you know, on the one hand, um, I think people, myself included, really need time to heal and to connect um, and to kind of feel our suffering together. Um, But on the other hand, I think that at the same time, you know, because as you say, things are moving so quickly. It's very, very hard to like, even for the people that want to, and I think there are plenty don't. Um, The people that wanted to kind of take the time to heal, I think, are kind of aware that there's so much going on and so much to talk about and so much um, on a practical level um, that needs to be like people kind of want to take a moral stand on. um, That makes it very, very hard. And I think, you know, I think that's not just about our need for healing. I think it also makes the practical side of things harder because when we are, you know, not willing to be in touch with our emotions, or are so angry or so hurt, you know, that we're acting reactively, or at least we don't want to feel what we're feeling, um, I think we tend to not be as, you know, thoughtful as we may need to be in the moment, um, and as caring to other people as hopefully, you know, we should be. And I think in a moment when we're going to war, and when connecting to other and connecting to other communities is so important, and not you know, and of course, also connecting to each other is so important. Um, I think, you know, these two things can often come in, come into conflict. Um, and so, I, th- I you know, I really am hoping to keep kind of pushing those messages a bit more because I just think right now, um, it's just it's unfortunate, and for good reason, that people are feeling like such a darkness that it's it's very hard to to kind of remember all that.
1: Yep. I've been to northern Israel and Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Uh, have you spent time in any of these uh, communities in the south?
2: Yeah, I uh, I used to do, so my first writing gig was for a website called Chabad.org. Um, it was like in my early, early stage when I was becoming Hasidic, um, and I was there for Operation Cast Lead, I was there um, for a bunch of other things, so when that was going on, Operation Cast was the war in Gaza um, in 2008. And, um, you know, so number one, I don't know, there were a lot of rockets being shot at the time, um, like today. Um, and I visited Sterot like, I think twice. I visited before the war and after the war. Um, and so I got to know the community there pretty well. I was kind of there when when I went there the second time. There was literally no no attack i was trying to take a bus there there was no bus going to Sterot. so i took it to like a neighboring city um and then no one at no no one in it like none of the taxis would take me so i went uh like with i think there was one bus that would go once a day that would usually take soldiers and and i joined that one and uh so when i came there the second time um, and i finally made it over there um you know there it was really a powerful sight because at that time you know, there were so many rockets falling and most people were kind of staying indoors, but I went to the center of the town and what I found really interesting was there's kind of like a group of people that were still hanging out in the like downtown area. Um And I would like, so I gave me an opportunity for people to interview and I got to know them pretty well. And we would just chat and then uh, a rocket uh, alarm would sound and we'd go, you know, a lot of the like restaurants and stuff are essentially also bomb shelters. We'd, they would just kind of take me inside and we'd wait then we'd come out. Um, we also had you know my wife and I, was, I had a someone that we were close to that that you, he, he's not alive anymore, but he he was uh, from that area. So yeah, to me it was it was you know it was so personal and so real to see you know the sights and steroids. you know, but I think on the other hand, um i don't know the other hand but another side of this was also that you know i think Sterot is one example in israel of these kind of towns where you almost expect some level of devastation to happen not not this of course but you know they were they were on the very close to the border of gaza um and it was just kind of known this is a dangerous place um you know even during peacetime rockets would fall there um and so you were always in danger, in a sense, by visiting there. You know, the, the town was known for having, like, widespread PTSD and uh, a lot of other problems, especially with the children. And so, you know, I think when some of us heard this story, we were, of course, devastated, of course, surprised by the extent of it. But I think not surprised that an attack occurred there.
1: And I assume you probably have do you have connections to any of the people who died or, or um
2: I have I think like most Jews um I don't have uh, well I personally don't have like thank God I don't have yeah. someone that close to me that died but uh, every like my entire Facebook feed my friends my family or my friends of my family like all, knew people that were affected on some of, I had a, it was just my face. Someone mentioned, someone used the term like their Facebook feed was like an obituary for like a week. Um, and I think it was, yeah, it was, that was exactly what my Facebook feed was like. Um, and what it was like to talk to people and to connect with them. You'd never know if you're calling someone and just checking in with them. If they said, you know what I said, which is like my family's okay. Or if, you know, I called another friend who works with, um, like, uh, Holocaust survivors who live in poverty, which is a big problem in Israel. Um, And he said, you know, half of the people he knew were killed there uh, in that program. And also mentioned, you know, and now he has a translator uh, for his work that lives in Gaza and he's think God alive, but he kind of assumes at some point he's 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 feeling very hopeless in terms of what's going to happen with him. So, you know, this stuff is is personal to all of us deeply. Uh,
1: The the difficulty with this is that now people are dying in Gaza and there's terrible suffering you can see going on there so focusing on october 7th to a lot of people seems political but i i don't think it is going back to the days after would you care to remark on just sort of what what did you think about the way people were responding were you surprised by anything
2: um like for like the immediate days afterwards
1: yeah some of the um you know the the tweets that went viral this uh, teen vogue writer wrote, wrote um, what did you think mm-hmm. de decolonization was supposed to be essays the mm-hmm. you know, St- mm-hmm. those types of things what do you have any thoughts on that
2: yeah i mean um you know it was of course disturbing i think there were two two sides to this um that i think are not discussed enough so one is of course, you know, that there are people who really said and continue to say horrific things about the attack, um or at least are unable to are are very sympathetic to, you know, the Palestinian loss of life, but not to but have difficulty seeing Israelis uh, and Israeli civilians as innocent and and thus uh, will not allow themselves to feel what it means when Israeli baby is killed. Um, and I think, course that is absolutely heartbreaking i think there was also another side of this that i think has not been discussed enough because i think of course because people are in such pain because i think some people might think it's not an excuse because um and because some people are just not paying attention also because there's a lot of motivation to paint the entire left and progressive world as anti-semitic um now i think what's what happened with a lot of uh, organizations, a lot of individuals was this. This story was not an instant. And this wasn't like 9-11 where we all saw the horror happen in front of our eyes and it all happened, you know, while it, we all saw like the plane hit. And by the time the second plane hit, we oh. all knew what was happening. And by the time the, you know, the the buildings fell, we understood exactly what uh, how, ma- you know, we understood exactly what that meant in terms of loss of life. Um. I think when it first came out, at first, you know, I think depending on how you heard the story, you might have heard first that Gazans broke out of the out of the fence um, and then you might have heard about an attack but not really heard what it meant. And then you would hear about, you know, innocent people being killed and then you heard about a town being attacked and then you heard about multiple, to- you know, and, and that, you know, it was on and on and then you heard about the concert, you know, and at a certain point it became very obvious that this was like a different attack. Um, And I think that on the one hand, I think there is this like, uh, this is in general, the kind of thing that I I feel like I try to that I feel like is my mission to change in my in my work, um, which is that I think a lot of people have like a templated approach to how they deal with these moments, meaning there's been attacks before on Israel. There's been debates about what to do about the attacks. And there are also a lot of um, consistent positions that people have taken in that regard. Mm. So what that means is when there's an attack, usually there's kind of just like the response template. And I mean that both in like a literal sense that organizations essentially have a template for how they respond. And then you have an individual like in your head, kind of a pre-recorded idea of what you're gonna say in that moment. Um, And I think, yeah and I think that makes sense it's it's hard to completely craft an a completely new ideology or way of thinking for each attack um but on the other hand I think in that moment um especially once it started to come out that this was like not a normal attack I think a lot of people made either made a purposeful made a, they were either made a mistake or it was irresponsible or however you want to put it um where they just gave their standard responses like saying the problem is occupation for example that kind of thing um and i think they're and i think that's important in a sense because they they are correct to want to get to like the source of a problem but i think when we're dealing with that level of terror when we're dealing with hamas when we're dealing with um something unprecedented in israel's history um or maybe not unprecedented but at least you know it's been a very long time since we had anything like that. Um, You you, having a templated approach is revealed to be um, as problematic as it sounds. And I think that it can get you only so far. And then in these moments, you really need to like take a moment to like remember your humanity. And I mean that both for, again, for organizations and for individuals. And so what we're seeing now, I think, is like an adjustment to that. I think there are a ton more than are given credit um, there are a ton of organizations and individuals who have adjusted adjusted the way they speak about this and have been thoughtful about how they approach it um, and then there's a ton that aren't um and i think that that's really important to highlight and it's really important to highlight the difference because when you flatten it into you know the left uh, is all like this or whatever you destroy you know really like a a group of people that are committed to justice for, for, you know, for all people. And I think that building a better world requires a lot of solidarity, requires a lot of connection with other groups. And these moments make it way too easy to forget that and way too easy to think my only safety is my own people. Um, And it's, again, understandable, but it's not sustainable. I mean, the whole, the way this, One of the reasons that this happened uh, or that it happened as bad as it did, I should say, was that a government in charge of protecting Israelis was so obsessed with this idea uh, that we need to protect ourselves at all costs, that it, you know, metastasized into a bigger problem where they believed they were they were not just in charge of protecting themselves. They were in charge of protecting. Anyone that would dare challenge them, they're in charge of the borders, they're in charge of the entire Judean area, and on and on and on. And what that turned into was um, a such an obsessive um, way of thinking, it was such a fanatical way of thinking, that so many resources were put into oppressing Palestinians in the West Bank, that there were literally no or very few, um, definitely not anything worth talking about um, uh, in terms of... Uh, army uh, and police to protect the Israelis in the south. I mean, this, is, this was a direct thing. This is, and, and Israelis talk have been very, very public about this problem, um, and the liberal Israelis in, in particular have been very vocal about about this. And so, my point is that there's something deeper going on where it's not just about the fact that you know we should be in solidarity with others because it's the right thing. It's the fact that y- you can see in israel even in, uh, an entire country built on um the ideology that you need to protect your own cannot protect its own by, while also being fully invested in others israel depends on america depends on allies you know this is not the as this mythology that we can live on our own and protect our own is is just that um and it's just not sustainable. It's not
1: a strategic way of approaching the world, let alone a moral one. So I'm reformed Jewish, <laughs> um, very different world from Habab. That wasn't my world of Judaism. Um, what did you grow up as yourself? Uh, I grew up
2: with um, kind of like, probably the best way of putting it would be like, secular Israeli, meaning my parents, were Israeli. Uh, um they were secular. Um so what that means is like a very, very mm-hmm. strong cultural mm-hmm. identity with Judaism as well as, you know, a good amount more amount of knowledge than probably the average American, but definitely not like religious. Okay. Okay, gotcha.
1: And then you became you got you became um Orthodox. You you joined Chabad mm-hmm. and then you left Chabad, right? I th-
2: yeah, so so I joined Chabad in, well, I started going to Chabad in college, a Chabad house, which is different than like being part of Chabad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, uh, after that, I went to Israel. I studied there for a bit. That was also when I started my writing uh, over there for Chabad.org. I became at that point, like pretty committed to being Chabad. Um, got married shortly after that. Then again, moved to Israel, then came back to America and in America, I lived in Brooklyn and Crown Heights, which is really like the center mm-hmm. of Chabad. And at that time I became, uh, I was, that was kind of like the most committed I was to it. it. was also when I was the most integrated into the, into the Chabad community and Hasidic community there. Um, I lived there for about 10 years. And towards the end of that was when I first, I left Chabad, then I left and then when we moved. Away from there was when I left Orthodoxy as a whole.
1: So, I re- the day of October 7th, it, I, you know, it's one of those days like I, I think I'm going to remember for a while. I was in a group chat on Twitter, and um, they're pretty much, I think most of them are sort of Marxist, socialists. and I don't think they are anti Semitic. I know some of them are Jewish, they're, they're Jewish anti Zionists. Mm-hmm. And um, when the We started seeing the pictures of the old women gunned down at the bus station, uh, clearly civilians, and the videos of, you know, the families being held hostage. It was just horrible, horrible scenes of children, you know. I don't need to get into that. Mm -hmm. In this group chat, uh, one member who is Jewish himself, um, but... uh, anti-zionist said glory to the heroes mm-hmm. today or something and they were really celebrating and I, i'm sort of a contrarian i couldn't help myself and mm-hmm. i was emotional until i posted a picture of the dead women at the bus shelter and i said in quotes glory to the heroes question mm-hmm. mark and they came in they basically told me there are no um israeli civilians um yeah. and this is actually I, we heard there's a big YouTuber named JT Chapman who goes by second thought he said there are, there are no Israeli civilians. they're settler mm-hmm. uh, oppressors
3: um Zaman sent, I was
2: also much, he says, did the palestinians actually take civilian hostage or is that fake news um i, I don't think, care yeah the <laughs> occupiers I don't, are uh, not
1: civilians yeah. that that is what it comes yeah. down to like if imagine well, French, like if if sorry, uh germany you know let's say germany to, mm-hmm. to be non-controversial invaded the united states and they they said you know what cincinnati ohio is our ancestral home and you know everyone knows mm-hmm. that's blatantly false but they they take your home, they murder your grandma, they bulldoze like your neighbor's house. Are those people yeah. civilians there? No, they're occupiers and those those are criminals. Yeah. That That is, there are no yeah. civilians there in the illegal military occupation. I, mm-hmm. you know this subject better than me, but I was not prepared for that. I didn't know that mm. was a uh, thing. So I was really uh, shocked for many days mm-hmm. by that. Yeah. Um, I think you're wiser than me. I'm sort of the dumb guy who, like, just reacts with my gut. So, like, I'm j- I am was just angry about that. But I'm sure you saw that stuff. How did you feel about that particular line of reasoning?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, like, probably, you know, legalistic arguments you could make or technical arguments, like, for example, uh, that would require um, believing that all of Israel, um, every single person in Israel is a settler. Obviously, I think... There's plenty of people that have maybe um, some logical arguments for why that's the case. Um, And then, um, but you could also argue, well, that's not the West Bank. This was an Israel proper. But I think ultimately, like, I don't think that debating that is productive because I think really what it is, is like, if you think that like an elderly Holocaust survivor or a baby or a child or, you know, any of those people that were collected, if you think that a child being uh, tortured in front of the parents or the parents being tortured in front of the kids, you know, and on and on, we can go into a million examples. Like, if you think that that is legitimate, like, there's really nothing, we are we have nothing to talk about. Like, meaning, I like, that's what I would say to them. And then I wouldn't debate them anymore because it's like, you know, we're just in a different universe of morality at that point. Um, and... I would try more to appeal to the people that are willing to listen because I think really, you know, I think part of this is, you know, we can talk about worldviews and talk about beliefs, but I think part of it is also like, we're starting to see to an extent, like a separation between people that are willing and open to, you know, feeling their humanity and allowing that to be part of of what guides them. And then hardcore ideology, hardcore ideology where you are so committed to a certain way line of thinking that you literally like cannot feel or listen to your own humanity and thus have trouble, you know, rethinking your positions. You have trouble being honest about your own positions and your own failures and and etc. And I think, um, I think in America and in everywhere in the world we're we're facing that in multiple directions, um, You know, again, I do feel like the issue is maybe overblown on the left, but I also think that because a lot of people are not willing to acknowledge it or not willing to kick out or call out people that do it, um, the problem continues and persists.
1: I know for a fact that many, obviously David Duke is one example. People use Zionists as a euphemism for Jews. We know that there are anti-Semites who are call themselves anti-Zionists, but I really... I. I don't think it's as simple as anti-Semitism with a lot of these people. Like, I think it's it's sort of more of a political thing. Marxists were very, you know, pro, like, hijacking and uh, anti-Israeli terrorism. And so, like, we sort of see that strain of kind of Marxism today where they just really hate, <laughs> they really hate Israel. But for some of them, they just think israel is evil and but they're not anti-semitic uh Mm -hmm. sometimes that is the Mm -hmm. case i I believe sometimes clearly not so israel palestine is the issue i sort of agonize with the most i could argue both sides you know i argue in my own head about it and i'll give you an example Have you ever heard of the rabbi eric asherman he's this guy Mm -hmm. he goes to protect um west bank farmers when settlers like at- attack them and he oh, just stands there he's been stabbed by settlers many times uh trying to defend like uh west bank all the farmers he's a heroic guy and i saw him speak at a friend's house and it was so powerful
0: in the field we continue to see um rampant settler violence that is not checked the security forces are not willing to lift a finger, practically, to protect Palestinians. The Unfortunately, our security forces are giving almost total direct or indirect back, backing to uh, the settlers as they've been cleansing this entire area of Palestinian presence.
1: And I've long thought it's a total disgrace that Israel is not arresting these settlers that are just being horrible to, you know, like people trying to harvest their crops and stuff. So that's on one side. On the other side, and I wonder if you agree, the rhetoric, the new rhetoric of sort of the younger left, and I really like these people 95% of the time, but the rhetoric has gotten really extreme. You can say apartheid, that's fine, but it is just, Israel is pure evil, the Palestinians are pure good. And there's a phrase I'm hearing uh, a lot of the younger people on the left uh, streamers say, and it's amazing, where they say, the Israel-Palestine issue actually isn't complicated, it's really simple, and there's a really um, obvious solution, and the occupation.
0: Which is amazing,
1: So, but it's come to this pretty radical place.
0: So in this video, I'm going to try and break down how this issue of uh, Israel-Palestine is not complicated.
3: As millions of people have poured out onto the streets in defense of Palestine, a common retort we're hearing from defenders of Israel has been this. You guys don't actually understand what's going on. This is actually a very complicated conflict. Stop pretending it's black and white. And the intention of complaints like this is really clear. They're intended to get you to ignore the murder that's going on in front of your eyes, because if Israel-Palestine is too complex to grasp, well, you might as well stay at home. You don't want to get anything wrong. It's not complicated.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that... Well, number one, I think... I'm trying to think about the best way to respond. I think that there's definitely, I mean, a huge problem in that respect. I think it's also like, it's very clear to me that there is kind of like, especially in that podcasting universe, there's a lot of like contrarian ways of approaching things. And I think saying something like, well, it's actually simple um, is kind of a big part of that. Um, I I think it's it's really important at this point for, for us to work with allies and and for ourselves to be vocal about these problems, about about the problems in the the rhetoric and the dialogue, because you know one of the things today I kind of ranted a bit on Twitter about white leftists, uh, because I really feel like there's a bunch of people that are like dying to feel like saviors, um, dying to feel like they're the ones who are going to solve this problem, and dying to feel like. You know, they're dying for a simple answer, like because it would be amazing for them to have that. Because for years they tried to ally with with Black Lives Matter, and they couldn't really commit. You know, perfectly. They tried in this in this respect, and I think just being anti-Israel without a larger vision of what that means in terms of like just in terms of Israel, but I think also in terms of um, humanity and like your approach to life and your approach to the way um, you think like conflicts in general should be handled, especially ones like that. Like I think is not something that's been developed in their minds and I think in a lot of people's minds. And so it's very, very easy to just be anti-Israel without being pro much except claiming to be pro-Palestinian and then kind of just going along with the taglines you've heard. And, and, I, and I don't mean to like dismiss yeah. every single person that's, that's pro-Palestine or anti-Israel at all. Um, but I do think that for a group of them, um, there's a lack of introspection, a lack of of um, thought around this that causes them to just want to be holy warriors. Um, and I think that creates a lot of problems.
1: The phrase that came to mind a lot, seeing the reactions was skin in the game. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and I started thinking i'm not going to name names but like when you're a lutheran from south dakota <laughs> and you're going up to like and you're or saying like you know that holocaust survivor who like went to israel and now he's old uh you know you're like a rhodesian you're like Bull connor you're mm. a war criminal settler mm. apartheid denigrating these people if I was Lutheran and I was like anti-Zionist, I would take pains to say, you know, I know about the Jewish history of um, pogroms and I know about this desire for safety and I understand why it came about, but X, Y, and Z. But I'm just amazed by the amount of times I don't, I, I don't even see any attempts to empathize. Yeah. Instead, they depict uh, these people who came from Europe from displaced person camps is quasi-nazis and it it bothers me it bothers me
2: yeah no i mean it is it is upsetting i mean i think that i think also i think there's kind of one of the things that I, i try to highlight um as well is that i think it's important also to separate the skin in the game people because i think for example um i have muslim and palestinian friends who the moment the hospital was attacked, you know, blamed Israel um, f- for it. Um, and for the record, I still don't know. I personally don't feel like we don't yet have enough trustworthy testimony I between either Israel or or Palestinians. But but, um, you know, I did think anyone rushing to assign blame in that moment uh, was just making a mistake, just like from everything I know about misinformation and stuff, not not about Israel, Palestine. Um, but when they did that and they were so angry and upset, you know, so upsetting, um, I think I didn't I didn't feel in any way upset about it. And and in general, I don't feel upset if they're sometimes saying something that I feel offended by or hurt by or, or might feel hurt by by somebody else um, because they have skin in the game. Like they're very scared for the people. They're just like when I see a Jewish person saying something or an Israeli person, actually more American Jews, saying things that I really am, think are really problematic uh, at this time, I'm also like, well, these people are grieving, You know, they're in terror. Um, in general, I would disagree with them and wanna to talk to them about it. I do try to find my ways of talking about it depending on who they are. Um, but it's also like, we have to be thoughtful and careful about, about these things. Like in the same way, Meaning to say, in the same way that we're kind of hoping for that for ourselves, from others, um, we should be kind of expecting that from ourselves, even while we're grieving. Um, because I think if we can't do that, then I think, on the other hand, it helps me understand what other why other people have difficulty with empathy. But um, I think there's a huge mountain of a difference between the people who are suffering and afraid and concerned for their families and in general, have intergenerational trauma around this. Have their own trauma around this, um, and on and on. There's a huge difference between those people who are Muslim and Palestinian, Jewish and Israeli, um, and like you said, like a like a white Lutheran from South Dakota or whatever. It's massively different. We see that you know across the board in America. You know um, where so many people treat this stuff like it's a game like or like it's a or like you know many people have made the analogy to, it seems like some people are treating it like a sport you know you put on your you know your team's uh, makeup and outfit and uniform and flag and you go out there and you think you're on like the right side and i think for a palestinian marching or a muslim person marching it's massive different massively different i'm uh, to be marching with a flag than than for you know some some other people.
1: Yeah. I'm not gonna lecture Palestinians about, you know, you shouldn't be angry. Obviously, those people like have legitimate uh, you know <laughs> they have skin in the game, right? As you say. I, I have a friend uh, from Israel and he would say to me it was sort of funny, he'd be like, just imagine it from my perspective. I have this hipster in LA come up to me after you know people my family have died for israel after Mm. this country was created by the u.n after the holocaust the displaced the holocaust survivors many of them dying in the 48 war and all the sacrifice building this country and we were told we're a legitimate country and now it's 2023 and some hipster from la comes up to me and says yeah, you're like apartheid evil and like we just gotta like undo you as a country. Like you're not like legitimate. Like you know, yeah. seventy-five years after the fact, like, yeah, yeah, undo it. And the, the from his perspective, that's so infuriating because he's like, Well, does anyone say Paraguay is not legitimate? But they they just get to come up to us and say, Yeah, you're not real. And yeah so i mean I, I think yeah
2: i think there's like a i think you know there's multiple ways of looking at this like on the one hand i do think that solidarity movements are important and i'm sure that you know a lot of the people who are fighting who have skin in the game for palestinians are you know i'm sure grateful to to have people on their side um exactly, yeah. but i think that there's like there this is why i think like humanity part of it needs to constantly be reemphasized because I think that, you know, there are people that are doing it for the right reasons and people doing it for the wrong reasons. And there are people who are doing it without regard to the consequences of how they how they speak. And then there are people that are doing it, you know, with thoughtful approach and are being brought in in that way. Um, and there are people that are being used, you know, in different ways um, by by multiple different actors, like for ex- like, just to give an extreme example, is like the far right right now, Nick Fuentes and others are strategizing ways to recruit um, pro-Palestinian supporters to become white nationalists and white supremacists. You know, this is something that is like a real thing. Um, it's not imaginary um, and it's common. I mean, I don't common, but it's widespread enough that it's a problem. Um, and. You know, I think that only occurs when there's not like a defense mechanism based on humanity. Um, when you're kind kind of so enemy focused that you don't have something else. Um, and again, I think that makes us const- consistently makes us vulnerable um, to suggestibility. Um, and I think like, and I, so again, I think um, I want to be careful not to say like every... White leftists who ta- yeah. who showed solidarity, you know, but I think yeah. there is that that aspect of like not putting thought or care or humanity into it, or at the very least, like a larger vision. And and then again, if you think about it in that sense, if you're so enemy focused, so anti-Israel that you don't have another vision, then of course, like a fascist, uh, a white nationalist fascist coming to you could sound attractive, or at least you wouldn't necessarily see the problems because in the short term, you could even ally with them, even if you know the dangers, but most people don't even know the dangers. Um, And that's, that again is like this, this is a huge, huge danger and problem in the way that we speak in America um, and elsewhere where where we become so focused on destroying an enemy that we forget what we're trying to build.
1: uh, One thing I've noticed, and it's really sad, and it's also boring, is that the sides are not even talking to each other at all. They're not even having the same conversation. And and this isn't to say one is wrong or right. So, But basically you've had during this um, uh, bombing of Gaza evacuation and, and the horrible stuff has been occurring. Don't get me wrong. You have the right saying, look, Hamas is like ISIS and they need to be destroyed. And then you have the left saying, this is genocide. A- and they're not even communicating so right-wingers would ask, oh, what are we supposed to do? Just send a letter, you know? And I would be interested in hearing that discussion, but I'm not seeing it anywhere, which is really, it's sad, especially because it's boring. And, you know, I view myself as ignorant. I view myself as a learner. I don't think I've read enough books on the subject to tell people exactly what the right thing is. So. I'm trying to learn, like when people say we need an immediate end to the occupation. I'm trying to figure out right now, like, does end of occupation mean that the Gazan ports can import any amount of Iranian weapons with no filtering? Is that like a core part of end of occupation? I'm trying to get past these slogans, and it's just everybody likes the slogans. Nobody likes these details and it's just very sad Mm
2: -hmm. yeah it is sad i mean i think it's um yeah and i think we're just not gonna we're going it's we're gonna go in circles with people like that and i think that this is why i try and just kind of focus on like continuously thinking about how do i explain like the the forward thinking approach to things um, because I think like, you know, and I think it's true, you know, I, you know, I have a lot more, like, for example, when I go on Facebook, it's a lot of the friends I had back in the day, um, when I was more like overtly pro-Israel and different things. And the, so on my end, I see a lot of things that disturb me from there. Um, you know, people who are consider themselves liberal and sharing like Ben Shapiro and stuff like that. Um, and or people even calling for, you know, carpet bombing of Gaza and that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, I think that the seduction of social media is to think that if I get into this argument with this person, um, you know, I've done something productive. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's true. I mean, like, I obviously argue to an extent with people online, like um, but I usually, even then, I'm kind of doing it as, like, kind of using it as an example as opposed to, like, just digging into them um, unless it's like a neo-nazi then I just mess with them Um, but even then I'm also doing it to kind of like make an example of like you know you can't just come after Jews without us responding that kind of thing Um, you know and my point is more like what's productive in these situations you know and I think that there's a lot happening in the world that allows us to continuously go in loops with people that we shouldn't be going into loops with, um, because it drains us of our energy. It hurts our own thinking because we tend to be kind of see them as a a massive problem. And then they may, they might be in and we definitely have to address it in some way. Um, But we become like kind of hyper-focused on them, I should say. Um, And I think like we need to constantly be like taking a step back, taking a step back, taking a step back, and then jumping in um, in the places where we belong. Um, And, you know, that's been like a constant learning process for me. I think for most people that use the Internet because uh, or social media, because, you know, this is still new in so many ways, even though it's now like two decades old, we still it's constantly evolving, constantly changing. So as a marketer, I find it to be an interesting exercise. Like, how do I use social media in a way that's not just draining me of my energy? And, you know, I think. um, Unfortunately, I think moments like this, you know, social media is always unhealthy. Uh, in general, especially if people don't know how to use it. Um, but moments like this, it can be traumatic um, uh, or it, at the very least can just drain us of any energy for anything else. Um, and we need to take care of ourselves. And we also need to like think, if I do want to help, how can I help the best?
1: Everybody laughs at the two-state solution. I know that. I'm one of those two-state solution people, and you can laugh at me. But it, it seems striking. The further we go away from that, even the dream of that, the less people discuss details, like, okay, so how are we going to solve this? How are we going to uh, have a port system where the Israelis don't think, you know, we're not going to let the uh, God, Hamas import a nuclear bomb from Iran? You know, the further we get into slogans, black and white, one side is totally evil, one side is totally good. And uh, the terror tr- attacks destroy trust, and we just get further and further away. And uh, I understand Israelis say they'll say we had no one to negotiate with. I I get it, but I've always believed they should just been caught trying. Just keep. They just should have kept trying, and we're just moving.
2: Yeah, I mean, in I think. Uh... Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that what we're seeing now and this is like what's hard to tell to help people understand, in my opinion, is that as horrifying as this was, um, it can get worse. Okay. And the reason that I'm saying that is because, um, you know, I this the, this approach to like, we're going to keep protecting ourselves, we're going to keep pretending like a group of people isn't there until we have to like mow them down when they cause us problems and that kind of thing. Um, That approach has literally like, overnight been proven to be ineffectual, not just immoral, but it's ineffectual, you know? And that's kind of where I started early when we first spoke, like, this is not just about, you know, what's the right thing to do. You know, the reason that it's the right, one of the reasons the right thing to do is because humans uh, are, inherently have worth and individuality and what that means is that when you try to pretend like they don't exist um they don't stop existing um they keep changing they keep growing they keep adapting um and you can pretend like they're not there um but they will still be there and so you know this is kind of the idea behind ethnic cleansing is like when you decide that you're no longer going to just um tolerate someone's existence you're going to literally put this kind of thinking into action um and genocide you know these are kind of like the the ultimate results so the point being that um it is not sustainable to keep living like that and it's only going to result in more of this and worse um the more it continues it's just going to get worse and i think And I think that this is like a Western mindset that continuously is brought up. We pretend like climate change isn't there. We pretend like authoritarianism is not on the verge of taking over America. We pretend like white nationalists are not growing. We pretend like Palestine, you know, this is true in America in particular. It's obviously in this particular context, it's true for Israel. And it's also true for America in the sense of thinking that we can just keep going on without caring about what's happening over there. So I think that, um, you know, I think that one of the things I hope people take away from this is not, you know, they keep saying, well, we need to stop this once and for all. You know, you're not going to stop it once and for all by doing this. It's going to maybe stop it temporarily. You may uh, hurt Hamas specifically. But, like, you don't. There's rarely a case of when terrorism itself has been stopped. One of the examples was um, uh, in in Syria. Um, I think another one in, in Sri Lanka. I think, um, and both of these, you know, they were fighting Syria itself. You know, was terroristic in how it dealt with and 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 its uh, how it was being run. But um, really, in both of those cases, the only way they were able to truly fight back was to essentially completely um, create so much devastation that there was essentially nothing left to fight back with. Um, And that's kind of the gamble. Um, Are they going to do that? Is Israel capable of that? Um, Morally speaking, um, I think is a question. I mean, obviously they're, to a certain extent, going in that direction. Um, But I think for the people witnessing it, I think this is kind of the moral and intellectual reality that you need to grapple with because we can't just, you know, I think um, I heard a line from a Israeli politician and I think he's a senior military official. He said, you know, war is just a continuation of a non-policy. And I think the problem is war doesn't sound like that. War sounds like you're doing something. Obviously you are doing something, but in terms of like a strategic approach, um, an approach that stops these things in the in the long term and in the big picture, um, and in a way that you're not going to have to consistently return to it. Um it's not a solution. It could um, be
1: a sugar high sort of yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. for sure. And it's for, for people it's who are good. suffering, it sounds mm-hmm. good, you know. Um, especially when they are so rightfully angry and desiring vengeance, yeah. you know.
1: And I'll just say this. I And I, I wonder what you think. I have this horrible feeling in my stomach where, like, Israel fought, fought three of these wars, um, 48, 67, 73. They miraculously won them. And they sort of, there's that arrogance of the winning streak. Yeah. I, we're always going to win. And you got Iran just who has been building up these forces all over Syria and Lebanon on the border with God knows what weapons. And I think if they go into Gaza, I, you know, I, I, we could really have sort of that young Kapoor too. And um, yeah. hope hopefully yeah. that does not come to pass. And now our second
2: interview with Elad recorded over a month later.
1: So we're going to talk about Twitter today, Elon Musk and your X Out Hate campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. But before we get to the campaign, uh, why don't we talk about when did you start using Twitter? Oh, that's
2: a good question. Um, Well, I started, I probably joined like, I don't know, probably more than 10 years ago, but I didn't really start using it seriously until probably like 2016, 2017, because, um, yeah, maybe 2017, because I I had a, you know, actually, it was interesting, because I had a, a relatively big following on, on Facebook, um, and the discourse at the time was getting so difficult um, for me, because, you know, I was so upset with a lot of things. I was, at the time, I was in my Orthodox community, and so I would get a lot lot of pushback from kind of people I knew, from friends and whatever that lived in my community. Um, And it was just very painful, you know, because I was hearing a lot of people kind of really become more and more right-wing, say a lot of hateful things. And I just, it was just really hard. Um, And the technology itself, uh, the social media aspect of Facebook makes it a little difficult for discourse because um, kind of one post can get a back and forth attention for a long time. So I just started ranting on twitter (laughs) and um you know without it was the thing i liked about it was i could write something and it would just people would lose not pay attention to it you know uh, two seconds later um and i really liked that and i also didn't have the same audience there and so i just kept ranting and ranting and eventually people a few people start listening and and that's uh that's basically how it got started was just this really just kind of verbal diarrhea to get out into the world.
1: Yeah, so what was your assessment of the previous regime before Musk? Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I thought, I thought it was horrible back then. You know, I, I, I was running an account to to that was monitoring anti-Semitism at the time, and you know, just like Facebook and other places, I was extremely upset with how much anti semitism naked anti-Semitism existed, not to mention all the coded anti-Semitism. And at the time that was like as bad as I had witnessed, you know, I was very vocal about it, both on this, on my own account and also on this kind of alternate account I was using. And I became, you know, actually kind of an activist at that time. That was kind of actually where a big part of the beginning of my activism around social media, so it kind of started started well before Elon Musk, and then once Elon Musk got involved, that uh, you know evolved very quickly. And you know, I'll also add that you know I've been very interested in this stuff, both in terms of that work I was doing, but also because I do marketing. And you know, the more I learned about extremism online, and the more I learned about you know the way extremists in general um try to um recruit people the more i started to see it really aligning with marketing tactics in general um and that both helped me understand it but also worried me a great deal because i know how effective it can be if done well
1: so so i mean and i agree with you it was it was definitely not perfect before musk came in but there mm-hmm. at least were right there were at least some kind of guardrails right
2: um yeah exactly Exactly. There were some, but it was quite badly
1: run. I think the first time I heard someone float the idea was actually from this guy, Darren Beattie. Because I remember uh, Mm. he went on Bannon or Tucker or something, and he he called Mm. out Elon Musk. He said, Elon Musk should... You know, buy this or do this. And he like challenged him. He's like, be a man, or you're just going to be like some rich guy or something like that. Mm-hmm.
3: Darren
0: Beatty has thought a lot about what Elon Musk should do to save this nation's public discourse. Darren, thanks so much for coming on. What do you think Elon Musk will do? What should he do? The stakes of who controls the global public square are vastly more than
1: the meager $30 billion that Twitter is allegedly worth the stakes of who controls the global public square is more important even than an electric car company. And in fact, I would say winning the political battle in the West is more, is just as relevant to the future of human civilization than even space travel. And I remembered that, we'll get to later why I bring that up, but just take me through his purchase what you saw him do and how long did it take you to figure out your assessment of the guy
2: um i i actually from the beginning of him um mentioning the purchase i was sure it was going to be a disaster um, and i was sure he was gonna increase the bigotry on the site um and i was sure the moderation uh was gonna Tank. Um, you know, I wrote an article very early on um, about the purchase. Um, uh, like I think it was, yeah, it was before it happened, like a month or two, and he had kind of floated the idea. And the moment I heard the phrase, there was two things that like got my attention. Number one was the phrase "free speech absolutist," and then I also had noticed him starting to spread conspiracy theories. And especially a conspiracy theory about George Soros which to me always sends you know alarm bells to my uh, in my head so um, I started so first I kind of called out the George Soros thing then I wrote a piece that kind of addressed the whole free speech absolutist aspect at the time I was convinced he was also a bigot but I kind of didn't want to focus on that too much um, because the kind of the point of the article is like any time a site or a social media site um, gets into the whole free speech absolutist territory that's when neo-nazis take over that's when hate starts to spread because when you basically when you remove all moderation then hateful people can take advantage of the situation and grow an audience very quickly so that happened on reddit you know that happened on you know, read it in the early days. I have it on Twitter, even during Gamergate, um, which was actually why they increased moderation. So, you know, these are the places where people become mass shooters or get, become radicalized in becoming mass shooters. But, um, you know, I think at the time he hadn't fully revealed how um, kind of unhinged he is. So I think I expected things to get bad. I did not, and I and I really tried to ring alarm bells, especially as I started to see the anti-Semitism rise uh, and the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, in particular, um, it was that and the and combined that with and then combined with that his reinstating neo-Nazis. So kind of that combination, which happened relatively quickly, uh, much quicker than I expected, um, that really kind of started me becoming more vocal about it.
1: So, what are the big changes Musk makes when he takes over?
2: Uh, so there's a number of things. One was um, so there's kind of two sides to this. One is Elon Musk's own voice, and number two is his moder- his his control of um, Twitter itself um, and what is considered hate speech and all that. So when it comes to his control of Twitter, I would argue that was far more impactful even than his um, his bigotry. Because one, even though he has a massive audience, it's very different to have one massive audience as opposed to, you know, kind of a decentralized social media ecosystem used by hundreds of millions of people every day um, where you have, you know, both someone like him who's using coded bigotry as opposed to, you know, and then people like um, Andrew Anglin who runs Stormfront, he's a, a open... Daily neo-nathy.
1: Stormer. Daily Sorry, Stormer.
2: Daily Stormer, my, my apologies. Yeah, Daily Stormer. Um, these, you know, these are folks that are overtly hateful and bigoted and anti-Semitic. So it became very vocal around that time, um, or even more vocal, I should say. So that, that was one of the big things was when I started to see him kind of openly talking about allowing some people back on, um, you know, he had like these polls and all that to talk about it. And then... Um, also kind of hearing all the stories about, you know, at that time, one of the biggest news stories around the purchase was the fact that he was kind of destroying the moderation, he was destroying the entire company's empl- uh, infrastructure in terms of who was working there. Um, and it was pretty clear that his, one of the groups he was going to get rid of very quickly was going to be the moderation team. In addition to that, it was also very clear that even if there was a moderation team, he had a very different idea of what constitutes hate speech. Um, you know, for example, he feels like racism, quote unquote, racism against white people and uh, is, you know, ban worthy, whereas, um, you know, racism against black people, uh, you know, some uh, other hateful speech is not considered hateful speech. S- Transphobia. Word,
1: cis is, uh... Right.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and anything transphobic is, you know, he's himself is saying it all the time. So why would that be against the rules? So, you know, all these things combined, like that alone is a huge, huge deal and probably impacts things a thousand times more than than his own bigotry. So, um,
0: yeah. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh uh, yeah. So he gets First thing he does, he gets rid of the old blue check system. Yeah. He, so it's no longer professors, researchers, reporters, you know, celebrities, athletes mm-hmm. with the blue check. It, it's now literally neo-Nazis. And he lets back just the worst of the worst neo-Nazis. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, He hasn't let back Nick Fuentes yet. We're going to talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um. And then I don't know if you remember, but he far from being the free speech absolutist, he does ban people right when he comes in. Do you remember who he banned first?
2: Yeah, he banned some journalists. Um I'm trying to remember who was the Chad, first
1: one. Chad Loader and Vishal oh, right. and Vishal Singh. Two journalists that cover like violent neo-Nazis.
2: Right. So uh, yeah, exactly. And then he also and and that was also kind of under the advisement of, and I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly, but Andy. um, No,
1: no, no. I'm sorry. I think it's Andy. No. Oh, Andy. No, No, I thought you were saying no. (laughs) no, no.
2: (laughs) So, um, yeah, so he he kind of especially early on because he would say, oh, this person is Antifa and thus violent and all these things. So, you know, he was getting advised by, you know, a known disinformation hack and, and racist. So. You know, it was, always, it was looking bad very quickly. <laughs> um, And yeah, I think the, the blue check aspect of that, of course, made a huge difference
1: as well. Yeah, he, he takes over and I mean, we're going to talk about this in a second in deeper looking at Musk uh, alone. But obviously, listen, there's like people who say he's an idiot. Well, obviously, like to do rocketry, he's not a literal idiot in math mm. and engineering.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But and it's bizarre, uh, he he gets Twitter, and <laughs> who is he, like, surrounding himself with? Who is he, like, his board of advisors? It's Cat Turd, account <laughs> account called Cat Turd, right. um, Ian Miles Chong, right. you know, and...
2: Kai uh, Racheck, you know.
1: It, and it's just this, like, low rent. I mean, he was just in a Twitter space with... Did you listen to that with Andrew Tate and Alex Jones?
2: I, can, I cannot. I have a very difficult time listening yeah. to his voice, so I did not join it.
1: Well, they were just idiotic, and he would come in and be like, well, uh, I think, uh, Alex, you know more about the WEF. <laughs> and it's love what are the globalists teach us? In the end.
3: Children are bad. We're ugly. Humans create you know all this racial division. They want us to hate each other, so we just yeah. give up, roll over, so the globalists can have the future. I would just yeah, like to I say think here, the
0: globalists are, are short-sighted too, because the, the the thing is that you can't really
3: separate yourself from civilization. Because the black rocks right. and the bubblegum are right now in control, if they, they were 100% control, you you, and others felt rested to maybe they're in 80% control. They're losing control very quickly as people discover what they're doing. But wh- what would you call the debate and discussion about a pro-human future, just team humanity?
0: Yeah, team humanity, absolutely.
3: As they want to misrepresent what Elon Musk or Andrew Tate or Vivek Ramaswamy or any of I'm telling you, they want us silence so they can lie about we, what we said. Yeah. Cowards. I mean, wait a minute. Being poor and everybody, wait a minute. General Flynn, hold on a minute. I'm going to call you out right now. Eating bugs, drag queen story time, (laughs) open borders, (laughs) world war three. You're saying, uh, that's not how you're saying their, 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 their plan isn't wonderful.
1: (laughs) Hey, for a guy that has, that has had to eat bugs, Alex, they don't, they don't taste very good. So yeah, (laughs) I'll go one step further. I think we should see a two V two MMA duel between, Elon and Alex versus Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates.
0: I Love think it. that'd be the real. I
3: think Elon should call him out. It'll be the, It'll be bigger than the top UFC fight. If those cowards will show up, my God, it'll be their water. You
0: know, I I, I think you guys may have been following what's going on in Davos uh, more than than I have, or and certainly more than the vast majority of people have. I think most people don't even know that there is a conference in Davos or the, or the World Economic Forum, um, and uh, I've, I've 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 only seen snippets. Um, but, you know some of the snippets are concerning and you know i don't i don't think we should have a sort of an unelected quasi governmental organization deciding our future uh, that's i mean who said who, who made them the boss i i don't i mean the, do people even know that they're doing this um like they i'm i'm not okay with some organization you know in, uh, that i don't vote for controlling you know my destiny or that of other people um don't Mm.
1: Is he like, what, I don't even know what to make of it. Is, is he smart? Is he dumb? Is he smart dumb?
2: I mean, I think I think it's a number of things. I mean, I think one of them is... You know, I think the, the blue check thing was interesting because he... What he essentially did was scaled like a yes man approach to technology, which was the only people who are going to pay for a blue check is someone who... Is cool with Elon Musk, um and probably more likely. You know, it's a very small group of people who bought the blue check, and it's likely you know that ninety percent of them are fanboys of, of him. So, you know what we what he ends up, and what and one of the technological aspects of that is, if you pay for a blue check, your replies are going to go to the top, right? So, for example, when he first in the first like few months after he bought Twitter you know he had not instated the blue check thing and so there was this tweet that he shared of him um, kind of in a Batman costume or something it was like showing Elon Musk as if he was Batman someone had put up this image and he shared it and I wrote something like oh my you know you're such a loser or something like that and it got like 10,000 likes so it was like the first results that you would see and he was getting trolled like constantly because of of his behavior. And because at the time there were a lot more people on the site who were against him. Um, so, you know, by instituting this blue check thing where all the, especially cause he gets so many replies, all the top replies are all people supporting him. It kind of like reveals his psychology and his approach where I don't think it's about intelligence exactly as much as like a a narcissistic need um, he's like
1: so, trump he's like trump no oh yeah I, i'm glad you brought pl- replies i forgot about that so he mm-hmm. he wrecks blue checks right and then mm-hmm. he wrecks replies especially right. like i i bet he totally ruined it for big like left-wing accounts because mm. now they have to just scroll past like
2: oh yeah oh, trump supporters P- I mean, they and they're they're all dumb. <laughs> so it's very it's very hard to like when you see a viral tweet, it's always like it used to be, you know, at the very least, it would be something interesting at the top. you know, even if you disagreed with it, it would be something engaging because it literally engaged people, right? So like this is like the opposite. You're just seeing people who are gullible enough to buy a blue check are the ones. Who are going to the top? So it's uh, you know really destroyed the like sense of discourse. And I think most people that didn't buy check kind of stopped replying or stopped looking at replies. So it's like not a great uh, you know user experience.
1: So he brings ba- he bans two uh, journalists that are critical of neo Nazis, Chad mm-hmm. Loader and Vishal Singh. And then he brings back some of the worst Nazis in the world. They're all brought back. Some of them even get blue checks. I for me Mm -hmm. that was yeah. I was exactly like you. I was like this is horrible. Um, Mm -hmm. Totally unrelated mystery though. Question, Um, Gabs Gab, which is the uh, the older free quote unquote free speech uh, version of Twitter, uh, its usership has gone down by half this year. Mm. A lot. Do you have any guess why that might be?
2: I mean, it might have a lot to do with Twitter. Um, I'm not sure, but I could see that being a big part of it. You know, I think for so long, you know, Gab, Truth Social, Parlor, there were all these sites that were trying to do what Twitter has done now, which was to have kind of a right wing uh, mainstream platform. The problem is all those sites tend to fail because people don't want to, you know, the vast majority of people don't want to be on a far right website. Um, so what Elon Musk did, which I actually think is relatively smart, you know, instead of um, instead of, you know, kind of trying to start from something from scratch, he saw he has the money he saw or in theory he does he saw, you know, this mainstream social media site that a lot of people on the right use. And so, you know, maybe I can hijack this site, you know, he kind of I think he had this belief. Um, that just this, no matter what, he could hold people captive on the site. Um, and so I think, you know, it's become a big, big draw for the right. Like a lot of the people who are once on Parler and on Truth Social, you know, are much more likely in a, to use Twitter now, um, especially when you take into the fact that not only do the blue checks, um, <clears throat> like, uh, go to the top of replies, they also have the advantage in the sense that if the really popular ones can make money um on the site so um it kind of creates this ecosystem where those people want to be there i don't know if that is what happened to gab i'd have to look closer at it but i could see that being a big part of it
1: yeah parlor's gone now when's the last time you looked at gab
2: um i try not to look at it too much
1: (laughs) yeah yeah me too well i looked at it uh last week to prepare for our interview and Look at what I found was hilarious. It was every mm. account now has their Twitter.
2: Mm. Okay, yeah. So they're,
1: they're all gone. Mm-hmm.
2: They're yeah, it makes all sense. on Twitter. It makes sense, yeah.
1: And Musk, when it really got alarming, was around, um well, he started doing the Soro stuff. You know, Soro, mm-hmm. he said... Mm-hmm. Soros hates humanity. You you tweeted this thing about George Soros. You said he wants
0: to erode the very fabric of civilization, and Soros hates humanity. Like when you do something like that, do you yeah, think I think about... that's true. That's my opinion. Then he mm-hmm. started
1: replying to just outright anti-Semites, uh, in- including mm-hmm. Andrew Torba, the founder of Gab, who's mm-hmm. a Nazi. Um, and then, uh, but but. And I was reading your substack and you you got it right. He he was he was very oblique in tap dancing. Mm-hmm. So like he would reply to this anti-Semitic thing about Mel Gibson and just be like, Oh, he's really that buff now? Right. Mm-hmm. So always like plausible deniability. Um, but it really reached a crescendo with uh ban the ADL. Um, because and me and you both right. noticed this. He was boosting by liking tweets from right. a just open anti-Semite named Keith Woods from Ireland. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's
2: also a neo-Nazi.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that. And I also want to ask, what do you make of this theory that Ben Collins reported on that, or did do you think Musk knew about ban, the ban the ADL hashtag before it happened?
2: I I could see that. I mean, it's definitely possible because he's he's like that. But I also think he's very impulsive. And I think, um, so it's impossible to know what he was thinking. But but what, one thing that's very clear is that he joined it um, in its early stages when it was almost exclusively neo-Nazis and anti-Semites using it. Um, so at the time he joined it, it was an overtly anti-Semitic, um, campaign run by overt anti-Semites. Um, so, for me, that was actually the biggest indicator. Obviously, his conspiracy theories were were just that. But to me, you know, one of the biggest indicators of anti-Semitic intent is when you actually collaborate with anti-Semites in an anti-Semitic campaign. Um, and that was a big deal. Yeah, I agree, it was a big deal. But the problem was that a lot, unfortunately, the way it was reported because a lot of the media tends to whitewash this stuff for whatever reason. Um, you know, they kind of made it sound like he joined the movement at a later stage. It wasn't necessarily about anti-Semitism, you know, et cetera. They gave him a lot of the benefit of the doubt, and it was just not like that. And, um, you know, I tried to call out Vox for doing that um, because they just got the facts wrong. And it's just hard. It's hard to to make sure people get their facts right on this yeah, stuff. When,
1: when he was liking a tweet, and and this is the contradiction, He's supposed to be this amazing genius. Mm -hmm. But then his fans will be like, Oh, he didn't know he doesn't know that Keith Woods is a neo-Nazi.
3: Right. When he likes his tweets. It's Mm -hmm. like,
1: so what is he? Um but 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 eventually he became just overt uh recently. But you write in responding to another tweet. Yeah. Um this is the actual truth. And it set off a firestorm of criticism all the way to the White House. Right. Uh, do you want to explain that thing? Uh,
2: sure. There was, um, you know, it's another one of his just replies, you know, but someone basically said, you know, that the Jewish population, Jewish Americans were um, allowing, you know, kind of this. You know, minorities to come into America were promoting. They said, wasn't
1: it dialectical hatred of whites or something like (laughs) that?
2: Yeah, it was something like that. And, um, you know, just basically it was the great replacement conspiracy theory where, you know, Jews, this this idea that Jews allow um, or actually try to destroy Western countries uh, and white countries through immigration and through promoting diversity. And all these things, um, and it tends to be something where stuff like you know immigration and diversity are seen as existential threats um, to white countries, to white Christian countries, or countries that they see, I should say, as white and Christian. Um, and um, and so and and in that vein, you know, in addition to them seeing these things as existential threats, they also believe there are masterminds who are doing this. Um, which are Jews. Uh, I mean, it's, and very often the way it's first presented is not naming Jews, not being too overt about it. But this, the basic idea is there is that there is some mastermind behind the scenes or masterminds behind the scenes who are trying to destroy, um, you know, Western civilization, which is why when he mentioned George Soros trying to destroy Western civilization, you know, this was something. That was not just about Soros. It was uh, conspiracy theories also kind of connected to this larger conspiracy theory? So when he supported that, he said something like it was absolute truth. Um, this was a situation where no longer was he talking about George Soros. No longer was he talking in vague terms. He, you know, responded to someone who's, you know, really overtly named Jews, and that's a very dangerous situation. Besides the fact that it revealed his own anti-Semitism, the more someone goes into overt anti-semitism the more likely they are to promote violence the more likely people who are listening to them are likely to become radicalized
1: and and then at the deal book conference and i i like andrew ross sorkin but he mm. should just read out the tweet that he, <laughs> that that he had agreed with because mm-hmm. he just asked him broadly and so musk was able to get he said uh basically, oh, I wasn't talking about Jews, I was talking about right. the ADL.
2: Well, one of the things that bugged me about that, I wrote a piece about this on MSNBC, and it was basically like, what bugged me about it was he basically repeated the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory, but he, again, kind of coded it. He, you know, he kind of took took a step back, but ultimately he basically said the exact same thing, just in different words. Um, And this to me was what actually upset me about Sorkin's approach was that, you know, these people, so many people in the media, um, you know, this is someone in a prominent position, he has been given this, you know, stage, literal stage to interview Elon Musk, you know, one of the most prominent anti-Semites in America, um, and is completely unprepared for how anti-Semites talk. Um, and how and what their conspiracy theories are like and what does it sound like when they are versus not being anti-Semitic what you know what are the different code words and that kind of thing what does the conspiracy theory mean and so he just let Musk kind of say this without any pushback most company most media sites didn't say a word about it you know they said he actually apologized which was nonsense he did technically say he was sorry Um, you know but then he again repeated the same conspiracy theory so So I called that out at the time and, you know, got it's unfortunate. It's just very, very hard to make sure these things are handled well.
1: Yeah, I wonder if he's ever going to just be asked real simply, why do you like tweets from neo-Nazis like Keith Woods, who said Mm -hmm. X, Y, Z, you know, which is Hitler had won the war. Just simple, direct question that they always give him these broad questions like, what about anti-Semitism? And he just, it's so easy to evade um so you wrote a piece in the foreword calling Elon musk the most dangerous anti-semite so let Mm -hmm. me play devil's advocate Elon musk says most of my i think he said most of my friends are jewish now he he is friends with jews david sachs you know he goes to dinner with lex friedman uh is Lex friedman jewish yeah oh interesting yeah of course friedman He, You know, he goes out, his biographer was Walter Isaacson. Mm -hmm. You know, he was part of the PayPal mafia, really, which was about half of it, I think, was like uh, immigrant Jews. So how do you respond to that? He has Jewish friends.
2: I mean, you know, racists have black friends. Um, Misogynists have, you know, Women friends are often married. You know, it's not. It doesn't. It's not a de- defense. And if anything, you know, saying that is almost always a sign that someone is anti-Semitic, because it's just not a proper response. You know, anti-Semitism is not about who you know and who you like. Um, it's about something far larger than that. You know, there is of course hatred of Jews, which is like, you know, the most direct and overt form of it. You know, but there's a reason I keep kind of using the word conspiracy theory, you know, and there's also anti-Semitic tropes and coded language and all these things. These are things that in theory, someone could believe in without even necessarily hating Jews, um, or even necessarily know they're talking about Jews. I'm not saying this is the case with Elon Musk, but it is very, very um, true that this is the case um, for a lot of people. Uh, And And ultimately, anti-Semitism has a lot more to do with the effect it has on Jews in the big picture um, than it has anything to do with, uh, you know, what a person, what kind of friends a person has. At the end of the day, Elon Musk has 180 million followers. He controls the rules of a place like Twitter. So whatever, however many friends he has is inconsequential relative to the fact that he himself is spreading, you know, something that has been known and it directly endangers jews um and he's empowering literal neo-nazis to endanger jews so whatever he thinks or feels in that scenario is irrelevant
1: right yeah it's sort of like if you told me that henry ford had jewish friends it (laughs) doesn't matter it doesn't negate you know, publishing the international Jew, right?
2: Yeah, and it's also like, I mean, he's done, like, for example, Twitter spaces with with some token Jews. And I think, you know, to kind of, like, stem his whole, Oh yeah, Ben
1: Ben Shapiro, Shapiro, yeah. He He also, also,
2: he met with Netanyahu, he went to Israel, all these things. Like, he always does it, like, a day after he does something anti-Semitic. And, um, you know, it's actually, even that kind of highlights his anti-Semitism because really what he's doing is kind of trying to separate Jews. And I mean, it was very clear once he, you know, replied to that hateful tweet about Jews that, you know, it's this kind of idea that here are like this small group of Jews that are okay. And then here's this like vast, you know, 80% of American Jews are liberal. Um, so even if he was only talking to liberals, which I don't think he is, but even if he was, um, he's, you know, essentially tokenizing the Jews he likes. Um, and endangering the rest that doesn't it's not much better (laughs) Um, especially once we're talking about again neo-nazis who are very glad to hate all jews and um are becoming empowered by him you know so yeah there's a lot happening there
1: have you heard from anybody that knows him personally
2: um i don't think so i mean i got trolled by high (laughs) rachic but i don't think that's the same thing
1: uh First of all, I just commend your bravery for taking on the richest guy on earth. And I get you guys live in the same town, so it's even more awkward. Yeah, I don't think we're
2: in. The, I don't think we're in the same neighborhood, but yeah.
1: <laughs> um. So you start X out hate uh, because you would think, you know, there are a lot of these ex Twitter employees, and some of them do speak out. Right? um, mm-hmm. you would think somebody like that or somebody, some big VC person would be with the leading critic of musk's uh, reign at twitter but it was you so why did you feel the need to step up and tell me about the campaign
2: sure so exile hate was um or is a campaign with it's essentially like a letter campaign we have um i think something like 173 signatories at this time where It's all Jewish leaders of various forms, you know, a lot of rabbis, um, academics, you know, activists, leaders, you know, that kind of thing, um, who have signed a letter, uh, an initial letter calling out the danger of Elon Musk's anti-Semitism, as well as calling on advertisers to drop their support, or just to drop their advertising on the site, which is funding the vast majority of the revenue comes from them. so the reason I didn't was because I was writing a ton at the time about this. I'd been sharing on Twitter, my stuff was going viral. I was sharing, I was, you know, I wrote that article you mentioned about him being the most dangerous anti-Semite. And, you know, these are things that were at that point seen by millions of people. And it felt like it was hardly making a dent. Um, it was making a dent in awareness, but not in like advertising and and not in the sense of it, it felt like I was one person, you know, which I, I kind of realized at a certain point it's hard to be authoritative about anti-Semitism when you have organizations like the ADL out there, which are listened to more. Um, and so when you're kind of a lone voice, um, it's just not enough. And so I came up with this idea with my friend that you know, we really need to like band together and make it very clear that this is something the Jewish community as a whole is very concerned about. Um, And so I reached out to a good amount of leaders on my own. I have enough connection with a lot of them that I was able to kind of get the ball rolling. And then, you know, I kind of recruited a few to help get some others on board. And, you know, it's not that hard to convince Jews that neo-Nazis are not uh, great people and that we need to do something about them. So, you know, I'm really grateful because it made a big impact.
1: Isn't it bizarre that we're in a world where you're doing what the ADL was supposed to do and they're running ads on Twitter. Yeah, we're in a
2: backwards world. No one should be relying on me, but it was, yeah. I mean, it's it's very depressing. It's very depressing. And I've been, you know, kind of biting my tongue about the ADL for a long time. Um, they've done a, you know, in Greenblatt in particular, I don't want to talk about the ADL as a whole, um, you know, where he's really just done, it's, it, this is not a new thing, it's just been years um, of this kind of, mis- you know, approach. um, And yeah, it's exhausting to watch. And, then, and once I started to see how much, you know, I think that was like really the breaking point for me was when he said that line. And then the next day, Greenblatt like thanked him for moderating a different form of, of what he considered to be hate speech. So uh, yeah, it's, so, it's hard. It's hard so to watch. Th-
1: so here's where... We we disagree. We have a strategy difference. Mm-hmm. I think it's fine if people want to go to blue sky, go go for it. Mm-hmm. But I think the more effective approaches stay because what is the source of Musk' his wealth? Okay, mm-hmm. there's there's these government contracts, and that's got to change somehow. And then Tesla. My advice to people is stay on Twitter. And tell people like AOC and Elizabeth Warren and Adam Schiff and Ruben Gallego and Senator Merkley, you can tell I look this up, who all drive <laughs> Teslas. They all mm. drive Teslas. Really?
2: People, AOC drives
1: one. Yes. If people wow. would pressure these people to publicly sell these cars, mm-hmm. uh, make a big deal of it, and then we can brand Tesla as a right-wing car because, like, really, the source of musk's wealth are wealthy white liberals Mm -hmm. because they want their tesla they love their tesla and it's like if we could get them to be like oh i can't be seen in tesla
2: yeah well so i mean actually we're not as far apart as you may think i mean i am on twitter and so by the way by the way i had to look it up aoc has committed to trading in her tesla for a union made Great, but great, great. That's good news. Because <laughs> I was about to lose it. But um, but yeah, so I when people ask me, like, because you know, I'm blue, I am on blue sky and on threads, and very often people be like, Why are you still on Twitter if you're like so vocal about Elon Musk? And and I say, you know, to them kind of the same thing, you know, I'll say here, which is that I do support people quitting the platform just because you know, partly it's a self-care thing. I don't think most people should be exposing themselves to neo-Nazis constantly. And the other thing is that, you know, it it does make an impact to leave. I don't think it makes as much of an impact as people think, but it's helpful, it's helpful. Um, But either way, I don't think it's an activist thing. I think people leave anyway because they hate it. Um, And I think that's something that I would depend on far more than, you know, some, relatively negligible amount of people leaving. So my um, so my approach has been, this is why I launched X out is because I believe very strongly that the way to hit him hard is to hit him in his, you know, in the pocketbook. And, and I'm kind of more focused on ads just because I think it's a more direct way. You've to done a great job.
1: You've done a great job.
2: Thank you, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, but the reason I focus on that more than like, let's say Tesla, is just because, you know, I'm kind of more at the moment, just kind of focused on that. But I do think, I do think all of this stuff, tarnishing his reputation, making sure people know what he believes, you know, getting the word out um, will affect things like Tesla, especially because, like you say, you know, it's liberals that have given him a lot of his wealth. I think also the other thing is that government contracts are a huge part of his wealth, um, both in terms of like, you know, how Tesla gets a lot of government, um, contracts and then also, you know, Starlink and all these things. So he was recently rejected for something like a $900 million deal with the government. And it's likely that it's because of all this behavior, not to mention his behavior with Ukraine. So, um, so that's, you know, very good. And I agree that his, you know, Tesla needs to be hard. That's the, really the source of his personal wealth. Um, and I think, you know, the government advertise, like all these partners of his need to be called out. GM and Ford work with him because they have, are making a standardized EV charging system with Tesla. You know, there's a lot that can be called out. The initial draft of XO, hey actually <laughs> kind of included a very exhaustive list of places that should um, end doing business with him. But like in order to get as many signatories as possible, I tried to just keep it focused, um, what- but yeah.
1: What I'm thinking about now, because he just brought back Alex Jones. He, I, he just brought back Kanye West. Mm-hmm. The first day back, Alex Jones was doing false flag stuff. Uh, the first day Kanye mm-hmm. is back, he's doing an anti-Semitic rant. And so I think he's going to bring back uh, the Nazi Nick Fuentes soon. And well, he's
2: lot- he's back. I mean, he's... He well, has yeah, a- yeah, yeah. Under uh, yep. another name. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. I think he's officially might bring him back soon and right. i've just been thinking about boy i would really like to work with people to get prepared for one that day because mm-hmm. like i would just love to go to mm-hmm. local tesla store with some flyers you know this yeah. is what you're subsidizing mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. this see these tweets yeah. you know it's funding you <laughs> yeah you because like yeah i mean i i don't know about you but Nobody in my family is allowed to get a Tesla. <laughs> and yeah. people need to start being annoying mm-hmm. and a pain in the ass. To It's really the rich liberals. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we can change them, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That... So maybe we disagree on this. So here's my hot take. Everybody thinks he's a total idiot for buying Twitter. And obviously he overpaid because of the timing. But... I don't think it was that i I mean he's worth over two hundred billion, you know i he mm-hmm. bought the global town square I think i I think it wasn't that bad of a deal for him I mean well, I think it, it was, yeah, I mean, I
2: don't think it was a, i I've actually been pretty vocal, I think it's like I think that you know it kind of reminds me of how people kind of gloated about Donald Trump being stupid like. It's very self-defeating to have that approach because it's just something that makes people feel good. Right. And it has no actual practical benefit besides lowering your defenses. Um, and I think I think it's a big problem because I think like when people make, you know, these kind of comments, it's very often like this idea that they will someone like Musk will inevitably fail. And I don't think that's true. I think that's a very like fantasy-based approach, you know, just like with Trump that people just thought he would, you know, this prosecutor or that prosecutor was going to save us. It's not how it works. Um, and so, you know, I think I absolutely agree. And I think the other thing is that, you know, even his quote-unquote failure, let's say, let's say the site completely crashes, everyone leaves, you know, um, makes no money, he has to go bankrupt, he has to, the company has to go bankrupt. He has still succeeded because his goal has from the beginning, and he said it himself was to disrupt uh, activists and journalists. and he he has succeeded. This was a place that journalists depended on for live news to in order to or on the ground news to share, you know information. It was a place where activists were able to network in ways that they hadn't before. um it was what led to, you know, the Arab Spring. There's so many powerful things that happen on Twitter and uh downplaying it is a is just a massive issue um so yeah so i think um i absolutely agree and not only that i think we need to talk about how, how he succeeded
1: um, yeah because yeah, he has yeah and the other uh, as the kids say cope is this thing of twitter's dying you know and mm-hmm. people will say this all the time like yeah. oh it's sinking ship it's gonna be done soon the network effects of Twitter are so strong. I am skeptical mm-hmm. that ugh, Blue Sky doesn't have DMs. It's you know it's the classic network effects. Everybody has to be there, right? And and when you get, when it's like uh, Parler and it's all right-wingers, they don't like it. When it's Blue Sky and it's more left-wing, people don't have anybody to dunk on. Honestly, d- I think he could like turn the background of the app to like hot pink and it would still be the sort of writing town square globally because of the network effects. Do you have any thoughts? Um, on
2: that? No, I disagree with that. Um, I mean, I think you're right in the short term. I don't think in the big picture that's true because... Um, Number one, I think there's a big motivation for it not to be. But number two, I think is that um, people like this, and this is why I was saying that I'm not even concerned with or or interested in getting people to quit Twitter because I actually believe people will quit Twitter no matter what. Um, I almost believe that's more inevitable than anything because again, you know, this happened with Gamergate. When Gamergate became a huge issue on Twitter, and in particular, the moderation on the site went to crap um, at the time. Um, a lot happened on the site. One of the major things was the decline of users. Um, that also happened on Reddit. When Reddit had bad moderation, people left. You know, This is a very like, kind of established reality of these sites. It doesn't mean they're gonna die overnight, but it does mean that people leave, and especially the most active users are the ones who are the least interested in being targeted um because they feel it the most so it's hard it's hard for people to leave especially if you have something like a hundred thousand followers or whatever hundreds of thousand but you know people are leaving um and and i think once we see i think it's really going to shift the tide's going to shift if and when more media companies leave i think that's that's going to be a big part of it because it's, it will become less and less, um, influential in the sense of like being a source of truth for a lot of people. So I think the question is more, what time frame will advertisers kill the site before users do? But I think it's honestly, I, I am convinced that the site is going to have an inevitable decline into, um, lack of relevancy i do think it's going to be hard and it's going to take time but because of what you're describing but but it's not sustainable
1: i i got bad news i'm going to have to delete this episode because i just saw that linda yaccarino she says twitter has never been safer (laughs) so
2: yeah i guess we're wrong
1: I i guess you're wrong well let's talk about data and metrics so who has really done well under musk on twitter but let's talk about jackson hinkle lucas gage Mm -hmm. can you tell us Mm -hmm. about these people
2: yeah i mean they've done very well recently it has a lot to do with the moderation also i would argue has a lot more to do with um with what's happening in israel um because twitter in general became a massive source of disinformation when October 7th happened and when um, the war started. Um, once that happened, um, it really made the ecosystem very chaotic. Um, you know, it's kind of like things were already bad on Twitter, but once you share, once something as massive as that happens and as controversial as that happens, then everything becomes exponentially worse. Um, and so part of that happens to be, that very motivated bad faith um, bigots are, you know, very aware of their ability to propagandize. And so what ended up happening was these accounts that you're mentioning, Hinkle, Lucas Gage, um, and a bunch of others were, are um, white nationalists. And, you know, they had a good audience, but then they became, um, you know, Believe it or not, they became pro-Palestine in theory, pro-Palestinian accounts. What they really are are propaganda accounts that share a lot of, you know, anti-Israel sentiments, um, a lot of disinformation. But more importantly, they're kind of setting up a situation where they're able to gain. Jackson Hinkle went from five hundred thousand to two million followers in a very short amount of time. Lucas Gage, I think, doubled his audience, something like that. All these people, you know, had his massive real name increases. Is-
1: Yeah, and his real name is angelo john gage just (laughs) right
2: and um yeah and he and so these are you know some of them lucas gage is like not hiding his anti-semitism he's very very out there
1: holocaust denier
2: yeah 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 yeah. um but a lot of them are really just kind of waiting for their moment or they're kind of hinting at things they'll share this or that um that's more racist more transphobic more homophobic more anti-semitic um but right now they're kind of biding their time because all they need to do is just keep posting what they're posting and they're just going to keep growing their audiences um and they can you know the thing is that they unlike let's say you know a Palestinian activist are going to be far less concerned with accuracy they're going to be far less concerned with legitimacy um all they care about is raid you know rage bait they're going to be they want to get people upset um because they know that will increase their followers. And that's literally what's happened, you know?
1: Yeah. So saying, like, oh, the hostage women are in love with Hamas, you know, because of yeah. the picture, you know, just dis- yeah. disgust- disgusting yeah, like that. I want to end with some questions just on anti Semitism. When you first saw sort of this disgusting sort of anti Semitism, was it on mm-hmm. Twitter mostly?
2: So the thing that like first, first, first got me interested in online anti-Semitism was I wrote a very stupid article when I, this was back when I was first Hasidic, like in my early years. Um, And, you know, I was kind of believing in a lot of kind of mystical things about Jews at the time. Um, And I wrote this article that was meant to be kind of like a deeper take on an anti-Semitic trope. And I was trying to say, I, I wrote something like the, the title itself was already a disaster. And what brought attention to it. it was something like Jews do control the media was the title. And it was kind of this, you know, idea that no Jews don't actually control the media, but we do have this massive effect on the world spiritually. And so, you know, all this stuff. So the like white nationalists it was published in times of israel so like that kind of combination of that title and being in times of israel um written by a jew was something white nationalists loved the moment they saw it because it was like oh this jew has just confirmed everything we believe and almost immediately i started getting like just a ton of attention i i had no idea at that time how big this community was and how vicious and and all these things um and all of a sudden you know, it was my first time. Now it's like nothing to me. But at the time, it was quite shocking, you know, to have, you know, thousands of neo Nazis, uh, reading your stuff and going after you and mentioning you. So I like, you know, that it just everything I did also made it worse. Like I asked the people, I asked the people there, can you please take down the article, you know, and all that stuff. And they refused at the time and they were only willing to make it anonymous or whatever. They, they gave like a, gave it a, a, what's it called? A pseudonym. Um, It was like Mendy something. And when that happened, you know, all these people are conspiracy theorists. So (laughs) that just got them more excited. They're like, Oh, look at them! They're covering it up, you know? And it was just like, no, I'm just scared of you neo-Nazis. And um, anyway, so the point being like, I, that exposed me Uh. a lot because I was looking at my blog analytics and I was seeing okay, they're coming from Stormfront, they're coming from, you know, here and there. And I'll go to these websites and I just saw how active they were. I saw how successful they were at kind of recruiting and all these things. And so that kind of exposed me to that world. Um, but I still very much, this was like a while ago, this was like 2012 or something. Um, so I kind of believed that they were very marginal, um, that they didn't really... It was probably even 2010, yeah. So they they were very marginal. I just felt, yes, they're very vicious. And at the time, I considered them scary, um, but they're marginal. And then I think this was actually a big reason that I was much more anti-Trump than other Orthodox Jews at the time, um, was I saw how these people were now becoming mainstream through the alt-right when Donald Trump came on the scene. And I was just in shock because I was seeing this community that had really traumatized me and scared me at the time um and had used and still does by the way share my article um and I saw them like becoming accepted and I was just I never would have imagined that at that time it was the most shocking thing to me to have that thing happen to me that felt as horrible as it was felt like a fringe issue and all I had to do was avoid certain things and not get in trouble again to suddenly oh these people might now be (laughs) connected to the President of the United States and their beliefs might now become mainstream. I would I couldn't believe it. Um, and so once that happened, I started to become obviously very concerned about Donald Trump and all these things. and then combined that with me, you know, starting to learn more about extremism because of my own experience as a Hasidic Jew and leaving Hasidic Judaism learning about how I got recruited, you know, what were my weakness, you know, like, for lack of a better word, vulnerabilities, I guess, that I had. And just kind of, and learning, and then again, my marketing, you know, influence, kind of having all those three kind of come together, um, I'd say something like four years ago, um, really, really kind of transformed the way I approached this stuff um, because I was kind of this combination of tech and knowing these communities intimately, and learning about how extremists recruit and succeed—that all these things kind of came together. And, and now for me to care about.
1: And now your time has come, and I, I'm convinced <laughs> you're about to blow up. You're going to oh. be a big star. So don't forget us, little people, when you do, <laughs> uh, when you're uh, on your book tours and stuff. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, I think, and I think people regard you. Uh, especially on, it seems demeaning to say, on Twitter as one of the <laughs> experts, but really Twitter is just a, the global town square of writing, I sort of think. You mm. are, like, one of the wisest. I, I think Ben Lorber, mm. you, a few other people. So I did want to ask you this question. I sent you a thing in your DMs. I, have, I looked for anti-Semitic tweets, and I found mm-hmm. some. There's one where it um, says "Crikey, look at the nose on this one," and uh, "Nuke <laughs> Israel," and then there's mm-hmm. one with the mm-hmm. the mouse with the like herpes and the yarmulke. Why is the anti-Semitism so? It's not just extreme; it's so vicious.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like like the the cartoons and the stuff. Dude, yeah. The viciousness mm-hmm. for Jews. It's so crazy. What do you make? Why is that?
2: Well, I think one of the things that's important to remember is that these are very angry, unhappy people. Like I, I, you know, I think it it can be it can verge sometimes on cliche to say this stuff, but but it's really true. I mean, these are people who like are spending hours and hours and hours on the internet, just obsessing over stuff. You know, conspiracy theories and. You know, you hear, you know, if you ever have the chance, I would recommend you, your listeners to, if you have the mental fortitude to read um, on Reddit, there's a subreddit called QAnon Casualties. And it's basically like it started as a QAnon thing, but I think it's kind of now just a general far right thing. Um, Basically, it's family members or friends, largely family members of people who have become radicalized uh, into becoming extremists. Um, and again, it kind of started with QAnon. It still is very much QAnon based. Um, and you just read these stories and these people are like not well. Um, and it, I don't mean that they, some of them are maybe mentally ill, but like, I actually think that it becomes its own mental illness in a sense, because they're, it's like they've become infected. You just see them, like, for example, even if they're not watching the internet, for example, you know, reading things on the internet, like one of the very common themes is that a lot of these people kind of start with watching Fox News, like all the time. It's like on when they have people over, it's on when they're eating dinner, it's on when, you know, they're going to bed watching it, you know, like, there's something very unhealthy about it, because the ecosystem sucks them in, in a way. Um, and, you know I've had that experience in my own life, you know, in, in different moments when I was unwell. And I think like, you know, it doesn't, your brain is not meant to act like that. And and I think when you become so obsessive, um, a lot of things kind of go wrong in your head. And then you add on to the fact that anti-Semitism is not just hate, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's like a worldview. It's something where you believe that, you know, there is, everything is wrong in the world. Like it's very hopeless. The world is in existential danger. Um, Everything that you know and care about is on the verge or has been completely destroyed um, because of, you know, black people, Latinos, you know like immigrants coming into your home and destroying it, all these things. And then so you have this existential despair and anger about your life that, that has a lot to do with just your personal life that's now displaced into this political discussion. And you have a supervillain to focus it on. Um, and I think so when you combine this like unhealthy, hateful inner reality with a super villain that you hate on top of that, um, that you can displace all those feelings onto, then you have this kind of twisted reality um, and way of sharing feelings and uh, yeah, it's pretty rough when you see it. <laughs> I mean, um,
1: like yeah. when they make the happy merchant into like a mosquito that mm-hmm. is biting the back and blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it's it's wild. So I asked this for a lot of my guests, so I got to ask you. Let's say if anti-Semitism, we were putting on a scale from uh, zero to a hundred. Let's say in two thousand four, it was twenty-four. Okay.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what's the
1: what's that number now
2: uh you're saying like in terms of how widespread it is or in terms of like it's danger
1: uh yeah well yeah how wide how pervasive yeah it is in society
2: oh Uh, yeah i mean uh it's hard to measure that i mean like i think so i mean it's very clear you know that anti-semitic incidents are increasing um, and also that people are becoming more vocally anti-Semitic in different ways, um, and that we're seeing like the same network effects you describe are also motivating anti-Semitism. Um, but I think what's interesting is also that one of the most important things is that the anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are largely becoming far more mainstream. And these conspiracy theories are not inconsequential. they have they're based in the elder. Uh, Oh, I'm gonna forget. Elders Elder, of Zion. Elder design, yeah, yeah, book. Um, which is like the source of a lot of the the root source of a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, and so we know how dark that can get. Um, when people really believe in it. So, in that sense, I would say it's vastly increased. Um, and that has kind of allowed the more overt anti-Semitism to become much more mainstream than it ever was. I mean, not not ever was, than it, than it has been for a well, long
1: time. I'm just going to gun to your head. What number would you pick?
2: <laughs> well, I wouldn't have started with 24. I'll say that because I would say. Oh,
1: I, let's I say was just using it as a baseline. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: let's say it started as uh, five or something. I I would say now we're at 15. I mean, it can get much worse. <laughs> it's right. Five. Five you is know. probably
1: better. Yeah. Five is, I should have done that. So you no, 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 it's like
2: because I was like, I could say 50 in response to what you said because it, like, in terms of relative numbers, it's, it's no, you're right, you know, it's much more. But in terms of hard numbers, I you're wouldn't right. necessarily say that.
1: You're right. So, by any chance, did you watch or read or were you aware of Richard Spencer around like 2010? uh
2: 2010 no i think it was like 2000 you know 2016 was when i started to get more clued into this stuff. so
1: this one thing i have what and i'm sort of a researcher we're both sort of you know research you're a real researcher but you know i'm sort of an amateur researcher one thing advantage i have on some other people is i came across richard spencer online in like 2008 and I, I basically saw the birth of the alt-right. He started the site and I would go, mm. I would go and just observe what are they doing. And he started a site called alternativeright.com. Have you ever heard of this? I think so, yeah, Okay. I remember. Talking about it, yeah. And one of the first articles they published was by a Jewish guy named Jason Richwine. And the comments were not like, get him out of here and all that stuff. And what I'm getting at is alt-right 1.0, it was like, we're not Nazis, we're not Klansmen. It was like more focused on like race, immigration, IQ stuff, okay? And if you look at like a Richard Spencer speech from like 2011, he doesn't even mention the word Jew or Hitler or Auschwitz, right? And then by the time we came to 2016, and, 20, and Nick Fuentes comes around around 2017. Now it's just, it had evolved into like, they're bored with the racism stuff and it's all about the anti-Semitism. So here's my theory and I want your theory about what's going on. Why is anti-Semitism increasing? I think it's partly that Jews are going to be the whipping boy of white, americans anger and anxiety about demographic change and the far right has decided to emphasize anti-semitism as a big tent approach that's sort of my theory about what's going on what do you think
2: i mean yeah i think there's um i i agree i mean i think but i also think there's just kind of different motivators in different ways you know i think that for example, um, people are 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 generally feeling hopeless in America um, right. and lonely um and are becoming more hopeless and lonely, and partly because of real things. you know, we car culture and infrastructure and uh, their, you know, uh, inequality, all these things are, are very much contributing to it. And then combine that with the internet's effect on. Um, communication and the way people feel um and bad faith actors who are manipulating them um and i think that you know there's kind of this like political part of it right which is like they're upset about demographics but why are they upset about demographics i think it matters as well um besides the fact that they're big you know that there's latent racism or not latent but there's racism in america that that plays a huge part in it um but i think on top of that, why are they becoming radicalized, I think makes a big difference. Um, you know, it's kind of a difference between, you know, a sort of like ongoing racist culture, which is bad enough. Um, you add on, you know, kind of like a Hitlerian anti-Semitism and, or sorry, bigotry um, and things get much darker. So I think, um, yeah, I think Jews are, are definitely paying the price, but I also think people need beyond Jews paying a price. I think it's like people need a sense of meaning in their lives and a sense of um you know purpose. And I think that America strips a lot of people of purpose and meaning. And I think as the world becomes much more or America becomes much more unequal and it becomes more clear, um, how you know a lot of people are getting stomped on uh in favor of others, you know, the Politicians, leaders, others are going to use, you know, or use moments like this to find other people to blame, because you know we see this with Republicans; they're the ones who are behind so much of this stuff, um, and they're glad to pass the buck to someone else. Um, it's the only way they can stay in power, and we've seen this in so many places, right? So, um, so unfortunately, you know, I think all these things kind of come together in different ways. I think there's different different avenues by which people access these things um but ultimately has the same result.
1: Oh, a lot i'm i gotta let you go but you're I you're amazing um thank you so much
2: i appreciate it
1: yeah if you want to say where people what people can do on mm-hmm. x out hate or plug anything go for it
2: yeah i mean if if you're a jewish leader listening please go to x out hate.com or support it either way but if um you want to sign? You can go to xouthate dot um, and contact me. Um, also, you know, follow me on Instagram uh, and Threads. I'm Alad nehari Also on Twitter and on Blue Sky. I'm Alad N. And my Substack is Alad dot com. So, thank you so much again. It was hey, really great.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Rob. Alad.
2: Alad Nejari's writing can be found on his Substack, as well as msnbc.com,
0: and you can find his landmark piece, Elon Musk is America's Most Dangerous Anti-Semite, at forward.com.